This is a Reconstructionist radio production. Please visit GaryNorth.com forward slash free books to download this book on PDF. The title of this book is Dominion and Common Grace, The Biblical Basis of Progress by Gary North. Copyright 1987. Institute for Christian Economics. Tyler, Texas. Chapter 4. Van Til's Version of Common Grace. There shall be no end thence an infant of days, nor an old man that hath not filled his days. For the child shall die an hundred years old, but the sinner being a hundred years old shall be accursed. Isaiah 65.20 Isaiah describes an era of earthly blessing. Its prime mark is life without death for long periods. This is the blessing of personal historical continuity. No more deaths for children. Sinners die at age 100 and are accounted accursed. This is clearly the era before the final judgment. For sinners still live and die. There will be no sin or death in the post-resurrection world. The common grace of God extends to sinners long life. There is no verse in the Bible more devastating to all-millennial eschatology. All-millennialists must allegorize it away, or better yet, ignore it. Isaiah is speaking here of the new heavens and new earth. For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former shall not be remembered nor come to mind. 65.17 There is a manifestation of this era in history. It began with Christ's resurrection, the greatest manifestation of God's kingdom, and it develops throughout New Testament history. This is the biblical basis for the idea of progress, a uniquely Christian idea, an eschatology of victory in history over the physical effects of sin, meaning victory in history over God's curse. I cannot stress this too much. Victory in history. Continuity. Common grace. We now return to the question of common grace. I have already defined common grace as continuity. Introduction. The question now presents itself. What is the nature of this continuity? Withdrawing common grace. Amillennialism. The amillennialist says that the slow, downward drift of culture parallels the growth in self-awareness and improving judgment. This has to mean that common grace is to be withdrawn as time progresses. The restraining hand of God will be progressively removed. Since the amillennialist believes that things will get worse before the final judgment, he has to interpret common grace as earlier grace, assuming he admits the existence of common grace at all. This has been stated most forcefully by Van Til, who holds a doctrine of common grace and who is a self-conscious amillennialist. All common grace is earlier grace. Its commonness lies in its earliness. It pertains not merely to the lower dimensions of life. It pertains to all dimensions of life. But to all these dimensions ever decreasingly as the time of history goes on. At the very first stage of history there is much common grace. There is a common good nature under the common favor of God. But this creation grace requires response. It cannot remain what it is. It is conditional. Differentiation must set in and does set in. It comes first in the form of a common rejection of God. 
yet common grace continues. It is on a lower level now. It is long-suffering that men may be led to repentance. God still continues to present himself for what he is, both in nature and in the work of redemption. The differentiation, meanwhile, proceeds. Common grace will diminish still more in the further course of history. With every conditional act, the remaining significance of the conditional is reduced. God allows men to follow the path of their self-chosen rejection of Him more rapidly than ever toward the final consummation. God increases His attitude of wrath upon the reprobate as time goes on, until at the end of time, at the great consummation of history, their condition has caught up with their state. Because all men's self-knowledge increases over time, the reprobate man's Self-knowledge, therefore, increases. Self-knowledge is a good thing, a gift from God. Romans 7 teaches that the increase in self-knowledge that biblical law brings can produce in men a sense of death, which, through God's grace, leads to life. I should think that we would associate such an increase in the self-knowledge of the reprobate with an increase of common grace. Yet Van Til says the opposite. It leads to a reduction of common grace. This is an oddity of his exposition. There is a reason for it, his amillennial eschatology. He says also that God allows men to follow the path of their self-chosen rejection of him more rapidly than ever toward the final consummation. God increases his attitude of wrath upon the reprobate as time goes on, until at the end of time, at the great consummation of history, their condition has caught up with their state. But be forewarned, he also argues as we shall see, that the reprobate will progressively triumph over the church in history. Thus Van Til is arguing implicitly that God's increasing wrath to the unregenerate leads to their increasing external victory over the church in history. God says, in effect, I hate you so much, and my hatred is increasing so rapidly, that I will let you kick the, stu the stuffing out of my people, whom I love with an increasing fervor, as they increase in righteous self-knowledge. The ways of God are strange, if you are an amillennialist. The condition of the reprobate is one of increasing victory. Then, overnight, it turns into total defeat at the final judgment. Yet Van Til describes this discontinuity as demonstrating continuity. Their condition has caught up with their state. Caught up, indeed, like a speeding truck hitting a pedestrian in a crosswalk, or the crash of a plane carrying home the newly crowned world champion soccer team. Increasing Common Grace Post-Millennialism I agree with him that the discontinuity comes after a long continuity. This is the essence of common grace. It increases for generations, and then it is removed overnight. Jesus described the coming judgment of Israel not, in the post-millennial scheme, the final judgment, in terms of that great discontinuity, Noah's flood. But as the days of Noah were here, so shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. For as in the days that were before the flood they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day that Noah entered into the ark. And they knew not until the flood came, and took them all away. So shall the coming of the Son of Man be. Matthew 24, 37-39 The pre-flood people had assumed that business as usual would continue. Life spans kept getting longer. The signs of God's grace were everywhere. Then overnight it all ended. The greatest 
of common grace in history became the worst disaster in world history. It took the special grace, yet also common grace, of the Ark to keep history going. Van Til's view has common grace receding, and then the judgment hits. This is not what the Bible presents concerning common grace in history. Both common grace and special grace to Noah increased, but only common grace increased for unbelievers. God had Noah construct an ark that would allow God to remove Noah from the midst of the unrighteous. When it was completed, God utterly removed common grace from the world outside the ark. Not only the crumbs falling from God's table were removed, the table itself fell on top of them. Or to put it more precisely, the water table rose to cover them. They were baptized, first by sprinkling, and then by immersion. Van Til sees continuity in the form of a, of a progressive removal of common grace, with the final judgment culminating this steady, continual process. He specifically says that the judgment is the catching up to them of their previous spiritually declining condition. But how did they get the power to oppress Christians, if God's common grace was being removed from history? The discontinuity of judgment is, in, law, in Van Til's scheme, really simply the culmination of a long process of declining common grace. Then why should any reprobate be surprised when judgment finally comes? Those in Noah's day certainly were. What the Bible teaches is a different kind of continuity for the unregenerate, a steady increase in common grace as a prelude to the discontinuity of massive, massive judgment. The Threat of History Van Til affirms the reality of history. Yet it is the history of continuous ethical decline. The unregenerate become increasingly powerful as common grace declines. But why? Why should the epistemological self-awareness described in Isaiah 32 necessarily lead to defeat for Christians? What happens to the era of righteousness described in detail in Isaiah 2 and 4, 3-5? By holding to a doctrine of common grace, which involves the idea of the common flavor of God toward all creatures, except Satan. Van Til then argues that God progressively withdraws this common favor, leaving the unregenerate a free hand to attack God's elect. If common grace is linked with God's favor, and God's favor steadily declines, then that other aspect of common grace, namely God's restraint, must also be withdrawn. Furthermore, the third feature of common grace, civic righteousness, must also disappear. Van Til does not hesitate to affirm this scenario. But when all the reprobate are epistemologically self-conscious, the crack of doom has come. The fully self-conscious reprobate will do all he can in every dimension to destroy the people of God. So while we seek with all our power to hasten the process of differentiation in every dimension, we are yet thankful, on the other hand, for the day of grace, the day of undeveloped differentiation. Such tolerance as we receive on the part of the world is due to this fact that we live in the earlier rather than in the later stage of history. And such influence on the public situation as we can affect, whether in society or in state, presupposes this undifferentiated stage of development. Consider the implications of what Van Til is saying. History is an earthly threat to Christian man. Why? Van Til's amillennial-based argument is that common grace is earlier grace. Common grace declines over time. Why? because God's attitude of favor declines over time with respect to the unregenerate. With the decline of God's favor, the other benefits of common grace are lost. 
evil men become more thoroughly evil? Then how can they win in history? If common grace gives them law, knowledge, power, and life, and God steadily removes common grace from them, how are they able to win? This incredibly simple question never appeared in print until I published my original essay in late 1976. As far as I know, no one before my essay ever asked any defender of the common grace doctrine this obvious question. This gives you some indication of how people's eschatological presuppositions blind them to the obvious. The reason why nobody asked the question is that until the 1960s, there were virtually no post-millennialists around who had even read the literature on common grace. And the only one who had, R.J. Rushduni, did not spot the problem. What seems obvious to a post-millennialist is not obvious to the amillennialist. Meredith Klein read my original essay, as we shall see shortly, and did not even perceive its thesis. He got its argument exactly backwards. Van Til's argument is the generally accepted one in Reformed circles. His is a standard statement of the common grace position. Yet as the reader, reader should grasp by now, it is deeply flawed. It begins with false assumptions. Number one, that common grace implies common favor. Number two, that this common grace favor is reduced over time. Number three, that this loss of favor necessarily tears down the foundation of civic righteousness within the general culture. Number four, that the amillennial vision of the future is accurate. Thus he concludes that the process of differentiation is leading to the impotence of Christians in every sphere of life, and that we can be thankful for having lived in the period of earlier grace, meaning greater common grace. Multiplying the Confusion Van Til's view of common grace as prior grace is implicitly opposed to the postmillennialism of R.J. Rushduni, Yet his view is equally opposed to the amillennialism of the anti-Chalcedon amillennial theologian and former colleague of Van Til's, Meredith G. Klein, who openly rejects Rushduni's postmillennial eschatology. Klein explicitly rejects Van Til's conclusion that common grace declines over time, although he does not mention Van Til as the source of this view. Klein judiciously pins the tail on another donkey. He says that this view of common grace as earlier grace, is what the Chalcedon postmillennialists teach. Klein is incorrect. Greg Bonson, James Jordan, David Chilton, and I all reject this view of common grace, and we are all Chalcedon-trained postmillennialists. We were all on the payroll of Chalcedon in the 1970s, and one by one, we left Chalcedon as we came to it, fired with enthusiasm. The original essay from which this book is derived appeared in the Journal of Christian Reconstruction, two years before Klein's essay was published, and which he cites clearly not having understood it. Only R.J. Rushduni has affirmed Van Til's view of common grace, despite the fact that such a view conflicts with his postmillennialism. Klein rejects postmillennialism, especially the biblical law variety, and this is what led to his complete misreading of the postmillennial view of common grace. He thought he was attacking theonomic postmillennialism, when he was in fact attacking Van Til. By rejecting the idea that common grace declines over time, Klein breaks radically with Van Til. It is unlikely that Klein even recognizes the anti-Van Til implications of what he has written, any more than Rushduni has recognized the anti-postmillennial implications of Van Til's position on common grace.
in his own intellectual reputation-ruining review, essay of Greg Bonson's Theonomy and Christian Ethics, Klein writes, Along with the hermeneutical deficiencies of Chalcedon's millennialism, there is a fundamental theological problem that besets it. And here we come around again to Chalcedon's confounding the biblical concepts of the holy and the common. As we have seen, Chalcedon's brand of postmillennialism envisages as the climax of the millennium something more than a high degree of success in the church's evangelistic mission to the world. An additional millennial prospect, one which they particularly relish, is that of a material prosperity and a worldwide eminence and dominance of Christ's established kingdom on earth, with a divinely enforced submission of the nations to the world government of the Christocracy. The insuperable theological objection to any and every such chialistic construction is that it entails the assumption of a premature eclipse of the order of common grace, in thus postulating the termination of the common grace order before the consummation. Chalcedon's postmillennialism, in effect, attributes unfaithfulness to God, for God committed himself in his ancient covenant to maintain that order for as long as the earth endures. It is not Chalcedon's postmillennialists who predict the erosion of the common grace order, but rather Van Til. Common grace will diminish still more in the further course of history. It is he who says that common grace is prior grace. All common grace is earlier grace. The postmillennialist position is that common grace is essentially future grace. As I write in my original essay, which Klein's footnotes indicate that he read, but whose summary indicates that he obviously did not read carefully. Therefore, common grace is essentially future grace. Again, common grace is not yet fully developed. My emphasis were in the original essay. I wanted even the laziest and most ill-equipped reader to understand my point. Dr. Klein did not understand my point. This time, to help Dr. Klein understand what I am trying to say, I have added one sentence, numbered summaries at the end of each chapter. This kills two birds with one stone. People keep telling Christian Reconstructionist writers that we write books that are too difficult. We need to simplify our books, they tell us. We need to write for the average reader without any theological background. Well, I have, well, I have gone the extra mile. I have written it so that even Dr. Klein can understand it. The postmillennialist argues that things will improve over time. Anyway, most things will improve over time. An increase of special grace more bread on the table of the faithful leads to more common grace, crumbs under the table. Common grace is not earlier grace. It is later grace. Van Til rejects such a view. Neither, neither Klein nor Rush Dooney recognizes the extent to which Van Til's amillennialism has colored and distorted his whole doctrine of common grace. Perhaps unconsciously, he selectively structured the biblical evidence on this question in order to make it conform with his Netherlands amillennial heritage. This is why his entire concept of common grace is incorrect. His eschatology is incorrect. It is imperative that Christians scrap the concept of earlier grace and adopt a doctrine of common, crumbs for the dogs, grace. As special grace increases, so will common grace. As the world gets richer and more peaceful, the dogs benefit. The amazing irony of all this is that Rushduni never recognized the threat to his postmillennialism that Van Til's view of common grace presents. He therefore never attempted to explain how postmillennialism 
and Vanto's common grace doctrine can be reconciled. Obviously, they cannot be reconciled. They are opposites. Nevertheless, Rushduni's infrequent and under, undeveloped references to common grace indicate that this doctrine has not been very important in his thinking, and that a contradiction between Vantel's common grace doctrine and postmillennialism was a loose end that Rushduni, in his enormous output of books and essays, unfortunately overlooked. Yet Klein, in his rush to condemn what he thought was Chalcedon's postmillennialism, mistook Rushduni's view of common grace as the postmillennial view, despite the fact that on this question, Rushduni has adopted the amillennial viewpoint. Klein therefore attacked Van Til's view indirectly by attacking Rushduni directly. Confusion was multiplied on all sides. A post-millennial response. In response to Van Til, I offer three criticisms. First, God does not favor the unregenerate at any time after the rebellion of man. Man is totally depraved, and there is nothing in him deserving praise or favor, nor does God look favorably on him. God grants the unregenerate man favors, not favor, in order to heap coals of fire on his head, if he is not part of the elect, or else to call him to repentance, which God's special grace accomplishes. Thus, God is hostile to the ethical rebel throughout history and eternity. God hates unregenerate men with a perfect hatred from beginning to end, for they are totally depraved from beginning to end. Earlier has nothing to do with it. On this point, the Protestant Reformed Church is correct. Second, once the excess theological baggage of God's supposed favor toward the unregenerate is removed, the other two issues can be discussed. God's restraining of apostate man and apostate man's civic righteousness. Biblical Law and Restraint The activity of God's Spirit is important in understanding the nature of God's restraint, but we are told virtually nothing of the operation of the Spirit. What we are told is that the law of God restrains men. They do the work of the law written on their hearts, Romans 2, 14 and 15. This law is the primary means of God's external blessings, Deuteronomy 28, 1-14. Rebellion against His law brings destruction, Deuteronomy 28, 15-68. Therefore, as the reign of biblical law is extended by means of the preaching of the whole counsel of God, and as the law is written in the hearts of regenerate men, Jeremiah 31, 33-34, Hebrews 8, 10, and 11, and 10, 16. And as the unregenerate come under the sway and influence of the law, common grace must increase, not decrease. The central issue is the restraint by God inherent in the work of the law. This work is in every man's heart. Remember, this has nothing to do with the supposed favor of God toward mankind in general. It is simply that as Christians become more faithful to biblical law, they receive more bread from the hand of God. As they increase the amount of bread on their tables, more crumbs fall to the dogs beneath. Common grace increases as special grace increases. Biblical Law and Civic Righteousness The amillennial view of the process of separation or differentiation is seriously flawed by a lack of understanding of the power which biblical law confers on those who seek to abide by its standards. Again, we must look at Deuteronomy chapter 8. Conformity to the precepts of the law brings external blessings, but these blessings can, 
though they need not, serve as a snare and a temptation, for men may forget the source of their blessings. Men can forget God, claim autonomy, and turn away from the law. This leads to their destruction. The formerly faithful people are scattered. Thus, we see the paradox of Deuteronomy 8. First, covenantal faithfulness to biblical law produces external blessings by God in response to men's faithfulness. Second, God's blessings lead to the temptation of relying on the blessings as if they were the product of man's hands. Third, this temptation, if men fall into it, then brings judgment. The blessings can therefore sometimes lead to disaster and impotence. This is the paradox. Conclusion Long-term adherence to the terms of biblical law is basic for external long-term success. Short-term adherence leads to the judgment of God in history, or at the end of time, destroying history. The unregenerate have the work of the law in their hearts, Romans 2, 14 and 15. This does not lead them to repent, but it offers them a tool of earthly dominion. If they abide by what their consciences tell them, they can prosper. They hate God, but they love wealth. For a time, their love of the external blessings can overcome their hatred of God and the concomitant love of de- death. Proverbs 8.36b Furthermore, in times of increasing special grace, Christians will also obey God's law. The principles of biblical law become common practice. External covenant blessings become widespread. It is in these periods of increasing external blessings, in response to men's external obedience, that biblical law can produce civil righteousness among the unregenerate. Dominion through ethics. As men become epistemologically self-conscious, they must face up to reality, God's reality. Ours is a moral universe. It is governed by a law order which reflects the moral character of God. When men finally realize who the churls are and who the liberals are, they have made a significant discovery. They recognize the relationship between God's standards and the ethical decisions of men. In short, they come to grips with the law of God. The law written in their heart, in the hearts of Christians, Hebrews 8, 10, and 11, and 10, 16. The work of the law is written in the hearts of all men, Romans 2, 14, and 15. The Christians are therefore increasingly in touch with the source of legitimate earthly power, biblical law. Van Til has emphasized the importance of the distinction between the covenantal law, which in principle is written on the hearts of Christians, Hebrews 8, 9 through 13, and the work of the law which is in the hearts of unregenerate people, Romans 2, 14 and 15. They are not the same form of heart-written law. Commenting on Romans 2, 14 and 15, he writes, It is true that they have the law written in their hearts. Their own makeup as image-bearers of God tells them, as it were, in the imperative voice, that they must act as such. All of God's revelation to man is law to man. But here we deal with a man's response as an ethical being to this revelation of God. All men, says Paul, to some extent, do the works of the law. He says that they have the works of the law written in their hearts. Without a true motive, without a true purpose, they may still do that which externally appears as acts of obedience to God's law. God continues to press his demands upon man, and man is good after a fashion, just as he knows after a fashion. What I want to point out is Van Til's understanding of the possibility 
of unregenerate men's external conformity to the external requirements of biblical law. Unregenerate men can obey the law externally, after a fashion. This is a very important insight for developing a proper understanding of common grace. Sadly, Van Til failed to develop it. They do what is right for the wrong motive. But any right external action counts for something, temporally and eternally. Better to be an Albert Schweitzer on earth or in hell than an Adolf Hitler. Adherence to biblical law brings external rewards, including legitimate temporal power, Deuteronomy 28, 7 and 13. To match the God-ordained legitimate power of covenantally faithful Christians, the unregenerate must conform their actions externally to the law of God as preached by Christians, the work of which they already have in their hearts. The unregenerate are therefore made far more responsible before God simply because they have more knowledge. They desire power. Christians will someday possess cultural, economic, and political power through their adherence to biblical law. Therefore, in order to compete with the righteous, unregenerate men will have to imitate special covenantal faithfulness by adhering to the external demands of God's covenant. The unregenerate will at last bring down the final wrath of God upon their heads, the crack of doom, because of their rebellious misuse of the external power they have gained in response to their increased conformity to the external requirements of biblical law. At the end of time, they revolt. They revolt against God and His common grace. They revolt against a greater manifestation in history of His common grace, for common grace is future grace. They also revolt with a greater measure of God-given power. Because of their greater knowledge of the truth, their judgment is that much more severe. From Him to whom much is given, much is expected. Luke 12, 47, and 48. The unregenerate have only two unregenerate choices, either conform themselves to biblical law, or at least to the work of the law written on their hearts, or, second, abandon biblical law, and therefore, and thereby, abandon dominion. They can gain long-term power only on God's terms, acknowledgement of and conformity to God's law. There is no other way. Any turning from biblical law eventually brings impotence, fragmentation, and despair. Furthermore, it leaves those with a commitment to biblical law in the driver's seat. Increasing differentiation over time, therefore, does not lead to the progressive impotence of the Christians. It leads to their victory culturally. They see the implications of the law more clearly. So do their enemies. The righteous, the unrighteous, can gain access to the blessings only by accepting God's moral universe as it is. The creation itself testifies to the holiness of God. They must sit under God's table. The Hebrews were told to separate themselves from the people and the gods of the land. Those gods were the gods of Satan, the gods of chaos, moral, disillusion, and cyclical history. The pagan world was faithful to the doctrine of cycles. There could be no straight-line progress, but the Hebrews were told differently. If they were faithful, God said, they would not suffer the burdens of sickness, and no one and no animal would suffer miscarriages. Exodus 23, 24, and 26. Special grace leads to a commitment to the law. The commitment to God's law permits God to reduce the common curse element of nature's law, leaving proportionately more common grace, the reign of beneficent common law. The curse of nature can therefore be steadily reduced, but only if men conform themselves to revealed law or to the work of the law in their hearts. 
One important visible blessing then comes in the form of a more productive, less scarcity-dominated nature. There can be positive feedback in the relation between law and blessing. The blessings will confirm God's faithfulness to His law, which in turn will lead to greater covenantal faithfulness. Deuteronomy 8.18 This is the answer to the paradox of Deuteronomy 8. Man's ethical history need not become a cyclical spiral. Of course, special grace is required to keep people faithful in the long run. Without special grace, the temptation to forget the source of wealth takes over, and the end result is destruction. This is why, at the end of the millennial age, the unregenerate try once again to assert their autonomy from God. They attack the church of the faithful. Revelation 20, 8 and 9a. They attempt once more to exercise autonomous power, and the crack of doom sounds, not for the regenerate, for which there is no doom, but rather for the unregenerate. Revelation 20, 9b. Differentiation and Progress The process of differentiation is not constant over time. It ebbs and flows. Its general direction is toward epistemological self-consciousness. But Christians are not always faithful, any more than the Hebrews were in the days of the judges. The early church defeated pagan Rome, but then the secular remnants of Rome compromised the church. The Reformation launched a new era of cultural growth, But the Counter-Reformation struck back, and the secularism of the Renaissance and then the Enlightenment overshadowed both, and still does. This is not cyclical history, for history is linear. There was a creation, a fall, a people called out of bondage, an incarnation, a resurrection, and Pentecost. There will be an era of of epistemological self-consciousness, as promised in Isaiah 32. There will be a final rebellion and judgment. There has been a Christian nation called the United States. There has been a secular nation called the United States. The dividing line was the Civil War, or War of Southern Secession, or War Between the States, or War of Northern Aggression, take your pick. Back and forth, ebb and flow, but with a long-range goal. History is headed somewhere. There There has also been progress. We see this especially in the progress of Christian creeds. Look at the Apostles' Creed. Then look at the Westminster Confession of Faith. Only a fool or a heretic would deny theological progress. There has also been a a parallel growth in wealth, knowledge, and culture. Are the two developments, theological and cultural, completely unrelated? What are we to say that technology as such is the devil's, and that since God's common grace has supposedly been steadily withdrawn as the creeds have been steadily improved, the modern world's development is therefore the autonomous creative work of Satan? since God's common grace cannot account for this progress? Is Satan creative, autonomously creative? If not, from whence comes our wealth, our knowledge, and our power? Is it not from God? Is not Satan the great imitator? But whose progress has he imitated? Whose cultural development has he attempted to steal, twist, and destroy? Where did the progress come from, and how? There has been progress since the days of Noah. Not straight-line progress, not pure compound growth, but progress nonetheless. Christianity produced it. Secularism stole it. And today we seem to be at another crossroad. Can the Christians sustain what they began, given their present compromises with secularism? Can the secularists sustain what they and the Christians have constructed, now that their spiritual capital is running low, and the Christians' cultural bank account is close to empty? Escape-oriented Christians and power-seeking secularists today are in the field of education and other secular realms. 
like a pair of drunks who lean on each other in order not to fall down. Using Deuteronomy 8 as a model, we seem to be in the blessings unto temptation, 8.17 stage, with rebellion unto destruction, 8.19-20 looming ahead. If nothing else aids the good indication of God's displeasure, judgment has happened before, it can happen again. In this sense, it is, it is the lack of Christians' epistemological self-consciousness in our day that seems to be responsible for the reduction of common grace. Yet it is Van Til's view that the increase of epistemological self-consciousness is responsible for, or at least parallels, the reduction of common grace. All millennialism has crippled his, his analysis of common grace. So has his equation of God's gifts and God's supposed favor to mankind in general. The separation between the wheat and the tares is progressive. It is not a straight-line progression. Floods and droughts hit wheat and tares in turn. Sometimes they hit both at once. Sometimes the sun and rain help both to grow at the same time. But there is maturity. The tares grow unto final destruction, and the wheat grows into final blessing. In the meantime, both have roles to play in God's plan for the ages. At least the tares help keep the soil from eroding. Better tares than the destruction of the field, at least for the present. They serve God despite themselves. There has been progress for both wheat and tares. Greek and Roman science became, became static. Christian concepts of optimism and orderly universe created modern science. Now the tares run the scientific world, but for how long? Until a nuclear war? Until the concepts of meaningless Darwinian evolution and modern indeterminate physics destroy the concept of regular law, the foundation of all science? How long can we go on like this? Answer. Until epistemological self-consciousness brings Christians back to the law of God. Then the pagans must imitate them or quit. Obedience to God alone brings long-term dominion. Primacy, epistemology, or ethics. In Van Til's view, history is a threat to the Church of Jesus Christ. Common grace is prior grace, as men's knowledge of themselves their presuppositions, and their futures increases. The church gets weaker and the Satanists get stronger. An increase in knowledge is therefore a threat to the church. The reason why Van Til's common grace in the gospel is so difficult to read and so muddled in its exposition is that Van Til's preference for asking questions about epistemology ruined his insights concerning common grace and history. He spends the whole book asking the wrong questions. He keeps asking questions about continuity and discontinuity not in terms of history, eschatology, and ethics, biblical law, but in terms of epistemology. He keeps bringing up the question of the continuity-discontinuity problems of the human mind, God to mankind in general, reprobate to reprobate, and reprobate to redeemed. The problem with this approach is twofold. One, his membership in the Christian Reformed Church led him to accept the Synod's 1924 statement that common grace implies the favor of God toward the unregenerate. And two, his amillennial eschatology led him to conclude that common grace declines over time. His whole theology rests on his argument that, he fu that the fundamental issues of life are ethical, not intellectual. But he cannot explain the historical reality of the greater and greater external cooperation of unbelievers and believers over time, a cooperation that has produced Western civilization's historically unprecedented, unprecedented growth in every area of life. Common grace is obviously increasing, yet he has to say that it is steadily decreasing. Why? 
because he says that increasing epistemological self-consciousness necessarily leads to increasing ethical self-consciousness, which means that reprobates will grow more evil. This means that God must show less favor to them over time. This means a reduction in common grace. The problem for Van Til's exposition is this. God shows greater common grace to them over time. They keep getting richer and more powerful. How can this be? In, I answer in response to Van Til that their increase in epistemological self-consciousness does not lead to an increase in ethical self-consciousness, at least not in the sense that their increasing knowledge of God's orderly world leads them to act in terms of their intellectual belief in Satan's alternative, chaos. They act inconsistently with what they believe. This is one aspect of God's common grace to them. He restrains them from acting consistently with what they officially believe intellectually. They become more evil in history because they act less consistently with their intellectual presuppositions. But ethics in primary, not logic. They gain power because of what they do, not because of what they officially believe. As the unbelievers grow more epistemologically self-conscious, they do not grow more ethically self-conscious. Instead, they tend to adopt the slogan of Hellfire Club member Ben Franklin, Honesty is the best policy. They also do not commit suicide, which is the ethical end of the truth, that all those who hate God love death, Proverbs 8.36b. Here is my thesis. The reprobate's increasing epistemological self-consciousness is not matched by their increasing ethical self-consciousness. Why not? Because God's common grace restrains this increase in rebellious man's consistency between epistemology and ethics. His common grace to them increases, but their consistency does not. Until the last day, of course. On the other hand, the Christians' increasing epistemological self-consciousness is matched by their increasing ethical self-consciousness. They can act consistently with what they know to be true about God, man, law, and time. This is why we will win and they will lose in history. We can be consistent and thereby exercise dominion. They cannot be consistent and still gain and retain power. Van Til's amillennialism, as well as his equating of common grace and God's favor, led him to reject the most fundamental thesis of his whole academic career, the primacy of the ethical. He focused almost all of his attention on the epistemological issues relating to continuity and discontinuity when discussing common grace, rather than focusing on the eschatological and ethical issues. I want to make my case against Van Til's view of common grace as clear as I can. I am arguing that Van Til confused the fundamental category of common grace, historic continuity, with a philosophical category, epistemological continuity. What does man know and how can he know it? He devoted his common grace book to the problem of knowledge in history and God's judgment rather than the problem of ethics in history and God's judgment. He ignored biblical law. He was long on Plato and short on Moses. He took the Socratic heresy of salvation by knowledge, if a man knows the good, he will do the good, and reversed it to mean reprobation by knowledge, if he knows the evil, he will do the evil. Here is how he argued. Number one, common grace implies the favor of God to the unregenerate. Number two, all men become more epistemologically self-conscious over time, meaning such things as God, man, law, and time. Three, implied but never stated. Epistemological self-consciousness logically involves ethical self-consciousness. 4. 
Both Christians and reprobates will act out ethics, their increasing epistemological differences. 5. Evil men will become act even more evil. 6. The favor of God will be withdrawn from them over time. 7. They will nevertheless increase in power. 8. They will use this power to persecute Christians. 9. Christians will therefore come under progressive judgment by the reprobate. 10. God will intervene at the end of time to save his nearly defeated church. All this assumes the validity of amillennial eschatology, though Van Til never mentions that this is the eschatological presupposition of his entire discussion. As a postmillennialist and a theonomist, I respond to Van Til's position as follows. 1. Common grace does not imply the favor of God to the unregenerate. God in no way favors the unregenerate. 2. All men become more epistemologically self-conscious over time, meaning such things as God, man, law, and time. Here I agree with Van Til. 3. Epistemological self-consciousness logically involves ethical self-consciousness. Logically, yes. Historically, no. 4. God, in his granting of common grace, restrains his consistency in the lives of the unregenerate. 5. Only Christians can act increasingly self-consistent with their epistemological presuppositions and still increase in the blessings of God. 6. Evil men will become, act, even more evil. Here I agree with Van Til. 7. To exercise maximum evil, they must act, to some extent, consistently with the Bible's view of man, time, and law. 8. The favor of God will not be withdrawn from them over time. They never had any favor after Adam's fall. The favor of God has nothing to do with their situation. 9. They will increase in power only when they act in conformity to much of the external biblical law, the terms of the covenant. 10. They will attempt to use this power to persecute Christians. Here I agree with Van Til. 11. As in the case of the Pharaoh of the Exodus in Sodom, this will bring them under the visible judgment of God. Christians, number 12, Christians will therefore not come under progressive judgment by the reprobate. Pagan rule will be cut short a millennium, a long period of time before the final judgment. 13. At the end of time, Satan will act consistently with his ethics, but using the power God grants to him. He will therefore act inconsistently with his factual knowledge, as he did when he moved men to crucify Jesus Christ. 14. He will try to destroy the church. 15. God will intervene at the end of time to save his briefly threatened church. Conclusion Van Til is the major proponent of the common grace doctrine in this century. He has constructed his interpretation of the doctrine on the foundation of an amillennial eschatology. He sees no earthly hope for the church. He sees nothing except cultural, institutional defeat ahead. He begins with this as his operating presupposition and then constructs his common grace doctrine in terms of it. This is what all other Dutch theologians do too. The Dutch Reformed theological tradition for 200 years has been exclusively pessimistic regarding the culture renovating efforts of God's people. They tell Christians to get busy with the cultural mandate, and they also tell them failure is inevitable. The effects of sin are supposedly too strong. Such an outlook has led, predictably, to an enclave view of the church and Christian culture, a king of holding action against the unbeatable satanic enemy. It is not surprising that Christian Reformed Church theologian, 
and president of Westminster Seminary, R.B. Kuyper, warned his fellow Dutch Americans. By this time it has become trite to say that we must come out of our isolation. Far too often, let it be said again, we hide our light under a bushel instead of placing it high on a candlestick. We seem not to realize fully that as the salt of the earth we can perform our functions of seasoning and preserving only through contact. But nothing changed, except that the leadership of the church has grown more liberal than it was in Kuiper's day. The Christian Reformed Church will speak, still speaks with a Dutch accent, so does the Protestant Reformed Church. People who do not believe that the Christian civilization will ever become a city on a hill and a light to the nations, and who recognize that there are extreme risks in trying to build such a city, are unlikely to accept those risks. Why bother? It is safer to keep your light under that bushel. In summary, number one, Van Til sees common grace as earlier grace. Number two, the protecting hand of God will be removed in history. Three, this will lead to judgment of the church by evildoers rather than the judgment of evildoers by God. Four, civic righteousness will steadily disappear. Five, history is therefore a threat to Christians, Van Til says. Six, R.J. Rushdoony has adopted Van Til's view of common grace, but without showing how it can be reconciled with postmillennialism. 7. Meredith Klein has rejected Van Til's view of common grace in his attempt to reject Rushdoony's postmillennialism. 8. God grants unregenerate men favors, but not favor. 9. Christian influence will increase, while rebellious men will see their influence decrease. 10. The means of this increase in Christian influence is the extension of the rule of biblical law. 11. The universe is governed by God's law. 12. Dominion is through adherence to biblical law. 13. If unregenerate men want long-term dominion, they must obey biblical law. 14. They seek power apart from biblical law. 15. Power seeking eventually produces impotence and historic defeat. 16. The curse of nature can be reduced through men's adherence to biblical law. 17. Without special grace, common grace cannot be maintained indefinitely. 18. As epistemological self-consciousness increases, ethical separation will increase. 19. This process brings Christians into authority. 20. There is therefore real progress in history in every area of life. 21. The fundamental issues of life are ethical, not intellectual. The Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network brings to you a complete lineup of podcasts where you will hear practical and tactical theology. Our desire is not simply that you consume our shows, but that you also live out your faith in every area of life. We can talk all day long about these things, but if we fail to put them into practice then we fail as ambassadors of Jesus Christ, our King. Subscribe now to your favorite Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network shows, or you can subscribe to the Reconstructionist Radio Master Feed, where all of the content we produce, including the audiobooks and audio articles, will pop up as soon as they are available. And don't forget to visit ReconstructionistRadio.com to volunteer as a narrator or to partner with this ministry financially. May the Holy Spirit stir you into action for Christ and His kingdom.